My friends, would you please stand with me for the reading of the Lord's Word. We're reading this morning from Colossians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, looking specifically at verses 5 and 6. Again, this is the Lord's Word. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Again, our Father, we thank you for your word and pray now that your blessing will be upon this servant and upon these, your people. That you will give utterance to me, that I will be faithful to uh, unfold your word that I will deliver what is there and not what isn't there. I pray for your people that you would give them hearts that receive the seed of the gospel and that their, your blessing will be upon them and that together, Lord, we might grow in likeness to our Savior, to all that he has called us to do. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those who don't know, um, I do preach expositorily and I preach verse by verse. That's why we are here where we are. Some people, uh, and I've heard this said, you know, it's not, I'm not listening to the Spirit when I do this sort of thing. And I go, actually, I think I am listening to the Spirit because I'm listening to his word. Um, Sometimes this approach to the scripture is seen as not being very spirit-led. And I think as as a pastor, my goal is to obviously walk according to the Spirit. But if the word of God is the word of God, then we don't cherry pick which verses we're going to give by this you get a well-balanced diet that's the goal is to teach you the things that the lord says in his word so here we are we're looking today at verses five and six again conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person none of us lives in a vacuum None of us lives in a place where we are alone, even those, and we've talked about this sometimes, uh, what about those who live off the grid? Is it possible that you can truly be without people? I'm going to live off the grid as soon as I get that generator from that guy in town. right? You can't truly even live off the grid, which in some circles is what people want to do. No Christian should take the attitude either that they want to get away from people, they can't, uh, that they can't stand them. The Christian is in the world. Jesus said this, but he is not to be of the world. He is not to be of its kind. Jesus said this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. James would say, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. My friends, the world is an enemy of God. It is at war against Jesus Christ. 
They refuse to acknowledge him as king and as the only sovereign. They will not recognize him, obey him. They have no desire to do what he commands, not even caring so as to be troubled in their lives. They live for themselves. They walk in the way that feels right. As we saw a couple weeks back in Proverbs 14, they walk and do and believe and live by that way which seems right to them. They mock. They scoff. They throw off his authority, as David writes in Psalm 2. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what we are witnessing, isn't it, in the world? This is what we are witnessing in the world. This attitude of, you'll not tell me what I should be doing with my life. I can do with, uh, do as I please with my body. If I want to kill my child, I may. I may sleep with whomever I want to sleep with. I may do it whenever I want to do it. If I want to be unproductive with my hands, with my life, if I want to throw off work and dominion, if I want to live off welfare and promote socialism and communism, I can do all of these things. They throw off moral restraint like a man who dresses like a woman or as a woman who behaves as a man. I can do as I please. And their delight is not in the Lord nor in his law. Their mantra is, whatever makes me happy, Whatever is expedient at the moment, without regard for the future, their own, or anyone else's, this is how the world lives. And this mindset is growing worse, perceptibly, day by day. I believe, personally, we are seeing the great apostasy that Paul would write about in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And it's unfolding before our very eyes. This idea of treason. You will not tell me what I'm going to do. This is the world we live in. This is it. And as I said earlier, we are not in a vacuum, but are now living in a post-Christian culture that has rejected the truth of Christ, has rejected the law of God, the light of the gospel of Christ, and they have embraced the kingdom of darkness. And you are living in this world, and this world is quite antagonistic towards Christianity. How do you minister in such a time and in such a place like this? If you asked yourself that, I'm sure you have. How do we minister in this world that is increasingly antagonistic? Well, it begins with prayer, as we read in in verses 2 through 4. We are only able, by the grace and empowering of the Lord, to do that which he commands. We pray for fresh strength from on high. The importance of prayer, we've, we've talked about this. My friends, the church needs revival. And when I say revival, some of you think I'm talking about ecstatic experiences, dancing in circles, bobbing your head, speaking in foreign tongues. That is not at all what revival is. Ask Jonathan Edwards. Don't ask him. Just read his books, right? Jonathan Edwards, who was kind of the central uh, focal point of the first great awakening where he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and they attribute revival there uh, to that that sermon. And he alone, he he too said, shaking and jumping and and crying and all of these things, he goes, they're not necessarily marks of anything. But what is the true mark of revival? It's the people of God with their hearts being broken before the Lord who turn from their sin and look to Jesus Christ and they serve him in holiness. Now this is important to understand. 
Why? Because if you're looking for revival, such as an ecstatic experience, you have this ecstatic experience in this building, and then you go out and your life hasn't changed at all. How does that minister to the world? But let's say you didn't have the ecstatic experience in here. But you come under the weight and the conviction of the Lord. His word washes over you. You are convicted of sin and you repent. And then you go out and you live this new life. And what does that do with the world? You see this. It brings the light of the gospel in a very tangible way to the world around us. Too often we look in the church and behave like the world around us. We are a stench and we are not a sweet aroma of heaven. The idolatry, the greed, the pleasure seeking, these things hurt the witness of the gospel in this world. Again, we need hearts that are turned to Christ. Hearts that are poor in spirit, that mourn over their sin, that are meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, that are merciful and pure. We need a reformation, a coming back to the word of God and to its sufficiency for all of life. We need a loving to come back to us, a love for the Lord above all others, above our families, our friends, and ourselves. The greatest cult of all, the following of ourselves. Anything less than this will remain ineffective as a witness. When we were last here in the book of Colossians several weeks back, The apostle had exhorted the church to pray, a making of the request known to the Lord and asking for help, a blessing in order that they may do the things that they had been commanded to do. Do you have uh, difficulty obeying the Lord? Of course you do. Of course you do. Do you struggle with sin? Of course you do. We pray. We ask the Lord to help us. You have a hard time loving your wife? Brother, pray that you would love your wife, that the Lord would give you grace. My sisters, you have a difficult time loving your husbands? Pray. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to help you. Children, do you have a difficult time obeying mom and dad? Pray about it. Ask the Lord to put in you a heart such as the Lord Jesus had in himself. Do we struggle to make Jesus Christ known? Are we timid? about making Jesus Christ known. What should you do? You pray. And this is what the apostle has done. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. The church then, as it is now, was in a very, very dark culture. And the apostle's goal was to make Jesus Christ known. This is why he urges the church to pray for him in the way he does. But this is not only the mission of the apostle, and it's not only the mission, my friends, of ministers today. We've got to stop thinking that the minister is the professional. The minister is not the professional. He's another guy in the church who has a calling on his life and he has gifts commensurate to the calling. But he's not the church. We're the church. We are the church. And the job of evangelizing is not just upon the minister. It's upon the whole congregation. 
It's the mission of the church as a whole for every single one of you to make Jesus Christ known. Thus, the apostle, as he, we come into these two verses, five and six, he now exhorts the church as to how they ought to behave towards those outside of the church for the sake of gospel witness. So I've just given you this litany of all these terrible things that are going on in the world, making the case, I believe, fairly soundly, that the, enemy, the church is an enemy of the world. The world is an enemy of the church because the world hates God, and so they hate his people. But we live in the world, so how do we make Jesus Christ known to the world? What is our job until the, the Lord returns or he takes us home in death? What is every Christian's job to be to be a witness in this world? He focuses, the apostle focuses on two key areas of the Christian. His conduct, the Christian's conduct, and the Christian's speech. The things that we do and the things that we say to those outside of the church. My friends, every day we are involved with people outside the church. It's at the doctor's office, it's at the grocery store, it's at the bank, it's at a restaurant, it's at the gas station. It's with neighbors talking back and forth, being involved with people. Paul would say in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So it matters. It matters how you live your life before the watching world. Now I can hear somebody say, somebody object, oh, so you are saying we are supposed to pretend that we are good Christians. My answer to this objection is no, you should not be pretending at all. If you have to pretend to be a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. If you have to pretend to be a Christian, you're not a Christian. Because I can't, and and no Christian can, separate himself from his soul. If the Spirit of God has taken up residence in in a person, that person will not be the same. Listen to me. I know we like to think that we control God, that we hold the dimes or the quarters to this thing, and we we can dispense and ask and, and seek blessing from the Lord. Give me a little bit of God, but don't give me too much. I don't want to look fanatical or anything like this. Friends, can I just, just very common sense here. The God who spoke by the power of his word and created the universes, billions of galaxies with billions of stars, You really think he's going to take up residence in a person, which the scriptures say, and you think you're going to remain the same? Anyone? No way. No way. No Christian has to pretend to be a Christian. And if you have to pretend to be a Christian, you are not a Christian. A Christian is a follower, a disciple, a student of Jesus Christ. It is what you are in Christ. It is what you are in public. It is what you are in private when nobody else sees you. If you're one who finds himself or herself so averse to the things of the Lord, you had better examine yourself to see if indeed you are the Lord's child. We hurt the cause of Christ before a watching and judging world when we say we are Christians but carry ourselves in a manner contrary to what we profess. While hypocrisy is in all manner of people, races, and sexes, there being only two, it is especially reprehensible in the people who identify with the king of truth, the king of justice. As it is now, so it is then, so it was then, that our Christian lives are an uphill battle 
against the slander that was leveled against the church. William Hendrickson writes in his commentary, he says, for example, the Christians in the New Testament times were called atheists because they served no visible gods. They were called unpatriotic because they did not burn incense before the image of the emperor. And they were called immoral because of necessity they would often meet behind locked doors. The church in America has been labeled hypocritical and greedy, being against people, also being called unpatriotic. And I'm not saying that these labels are just or are accurate stereotypes, and I'm sure you can think of more, but it is helpful to be mindful of what is said and thought about the church so that we may show the world that the stereotypes are not warranted. When we do sin, we ask forgiveness, we repent. When we are accused of hate, we demonstrate love, biblical love. When we are accused of being unpatriotic, uh, we offset this label by being law-abiding citizens, by staying in step with our constitution of our state and of our nation as far as it does not contradict the word of God. Our goal must be to conduct ourselves, to live or to regulate our lives in such a way that we cause those who are outside of Christ, outside the church, to think twice, to challenge their erroneous beliefs. That's our job. And as an aside, because he he mentions here, um, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. What is the outsider? The outsider is the person who is outside of Christ. They're not a believer, and they are thus outside of the church. I hear people say this all the time. I'm a Christian. I just don't identify with a church. If you are in Christ, you are part of the church. If you refuse to identify with the church, a local congregation, I fail to see how you can truly be in Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to die on that one. Because we have too many people calling themselves Christians, and they do not fear the Lord to obey the Lord. That's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. Only in America would we make something like that a possibility. Of course, we also recognize men and say they can be women. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord says, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. The Westminster Confession of Faith, an ancient and old creed, 500 some years old, 400 some years old, They say this, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. We need our ecclesiology. We need to get back to a proper understanding of what the church is and what it isn't and stop allowing the American culture to define for us the terms and conditions that the Bible addresses to us. If you're in Christ, you're in his church. Those who are outside of Christ are also outside of the church. Paul is addressing Christians, those in Christ, and how their behavior affects those outside Christ, outside of the church. As Christians, those who are in Christ, in the church, we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom 
towards outsiders making the most of the opportunity. One commentator said this, in the long run, the reputation of the gospel depends on the conduct of its devotees. In the long run, the reputation of the gospel depends on the conduct of its devotees. So it would be foolish if we, called, if we are called hypocrites, it would be foolish for us to behave as hypocrites. It would be foolish if we are accused of being greedy to be miserly with people. You see, they call you, you greedy and you only confirm their, their slander when you are greedy, when you are miserly with people. It would be foolish if we are labeled as haters to go around hating people even when I disagree with their lifestyle choices, I must never hate them, but I must treat them with kindness. I must nonetheless seek to bless them, to conduct myself with wisdom towards them. This idea of wisdom, it means that in whatever situation or circumstance, I live as before the face of the Lord, and I seek to conduct myself in an appropriate manner so as to please my Savior and adorn the gospel of my Lord so that this fellow or this lady may be challenged in what they have heard about Christians and might even be made desirous to become a follower of Christ. This is a hard road to walk. It's a hard line to, to, to stay on. You're involved in a community where they're, they're promoting transgenderism, they're promoting pornography, and you, you go toe-to-toe against these people. And on and one hand, you're taking a principled stand, and you, you want to say, no, this is wrong, and, and here's why. But you don't want to slip into, and you're such a jerk for believing that. You don't want to go there. You want to take a principled stand, and then you want to say, and I hope you're all right. Is there anything I can do to pray for you? Do you need help with something? you demonstrate a kindness without letting go of that principled speech and that principled conviction. Because if they know you're a Christian, and before anything else, Christian, you're a Christian, they do not like, outside of Christ, they do not like the Lord Jesus. And you're a representative of the Lord Jesus. You can be a stench in their nostrils, or you can be an aroma of life in their nostrils. They don't like where you stand, but for some strange reason, they're kind of drawn to you at the same time. They don't dread it when you come around. This is important. This is wisdom. Wisdom requires you to approach each person and each situation as it may need. For some, it is gentleness and others, it is appropriate firmness. Notice that our Savior, notice that our Savior approached the woman at the well with gentleness. His disciples are like, what are you doing talking to her? She's a woman, and she's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus treated her with such kindness and such gentleness. But then Jesus also turns over money changer tables. And Jesus in Matthew 23 had was not shy of using some very hard language with the Pharisees who were hard-boiled in their self-righteousness. Jesus never sinned, which tells me that there are occasions where you are to be firm, and there are occasions you are to be gentle, and that's why it's called wisdom. 
because it's not making one size fit all, but it's knowing what's appropriate to address people with. He goes on to say, making the most of the opportunity. Again, this commentator said, or buying up the opportunity, the sense would be, do not just sit there and wait for opportunities to fall into your lap, but go after it. Yes, buy it, he says. While you can take advantage of every opportunity you are given to bring a heavenly aroma, to put Jesus Christ in a good light, a proper light in the midst of a world that hates the Lord Jesus. My friends, this is your calling. This is my calling that when we leave this place and when we engage the world, you are first and foremost a Christian. You represent Jesus Christ to the world around you. But it's not just your conduct. Verse 6, we see here it is uh, also our speech. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Again, it is our speech. Let your speech always be with grace. James writes, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. The apostle elsewhere says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So our speech, the words we say to outsiders, they speak volumes about us and what we treasure in our hearts. We praise God and we curse Mr. Biden. It shouldn't be this way. We praise God and we should pray for Mr. Biden. Let your speech always, always be with grace. Always? Always, at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. It is always to be full of grace or gracious. What does it mean to be speech that is full of grace or gracious. We should not take this to mean flattery, undue or unwarranted compliments, lies, half-truths, sticky sweetness, uh, words devoid of reality, or delusional speech. But we should see um, gracious words as words which are true, that are full of light, that are edifying, without bitterness, corruption, decay. They should not be harsh in character should be language that results from the operation of God's grace in the heart. Paul again would say in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Our words towards those outside of Christ and his church, not to mention towards one another, are always to be gracious as those seasoned with salt. So I had an interesting experiment this morning. I cooked for myself two eggs over medium and a small skillet. And I used bacon fat. And I toasted half a bagel. And I put those eggs on that bagel. And I sat down with my fork. And the words of Job came to mind. Does the white of an egg have any flavor? (laughs) 
and it was saltless. And so I grabbed the salt and I put it on, I put it on those eggs and it actually had flavor. My friends, some of you are like the whites of an egg. You have no flavor. You go out into the world and you say nothing. You speak of no one. You take no opportunities to represent Jesus Christ to the world. You're like the white of an egg. And we're not supposed to be that way. Let your speech always be with grace as though as though seasoned with salt. As though seasoned with salt. It is language which, like salt, preserves. It is language which guards against corruption. It also adds flavor. It is not empty or insipid, but it's thought-provoking and worthwhile speech. Speech and words that, like our behavior, encourage people to look favorably towards the Lord. We need to take time to be able to speak to people. We need to give people time to express their thoughts, and we need to start engaging people in their thoughts. We've got to stop the name-calling, and we need to engage in dialogue with ideas that differ with one another. If, If the gospel you say you believe can't hold up under scrutiny, maybe you oughtn't believe it. Maybe it's not worth believing. I know it'll hold up under scrutiny. And I don't think we should be afraid to to sit at a table and tangle over ideas. Don't be afraid. Because this this is where speech becomes like salt, where we sit down and we hash things out with people. And don't go away, you know, flipping them the bird. We do that at least in our hearts, oftentimes we do. We sit down and we love these people and we engage with them. Friends, this is the way the gospel goes into the culture. And for too long, the church has retreated from the culture, has retreated from talking to people about Jesus Christ and retreated from making the claims that Christ makes of himself. And so we draw back into our congregations, into our churches, and we don't engage the world on their level, and guess what's happened? We've lost our saltiness in the culture. We can't sit back and do nothing. That's not what the Lord says. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward our outsiders. Make the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how one should respond uh, to each person. Do it so that you know how you should respond to each person or so that you may know how to answer everyone. The goal, again, my friends, is to adorn the gospel, to be a faithful witness of the Lord who loves sinners and came to redeem them. We are not here to advance our own cause but the Lord's kingdom. That is what we have been saved for. And we do this when we engage the world with the truth of Christ, both in our deeds and our words. So whoever it may be, to whomever we speak, whatever the occasion, we speak as those who represent the Lord. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. My friends, it's not only 
prayer for the pulpit and pastors, which is needed, but it is prayer for us all in our homes and as we engage the world outside the church. We must pray that our behaviors towards others would be wise and that our words would be full of light and goodness, that people, even if they disagree with us, should not dread us being there among them. And this is how we minister now in the days in which we find ourselves. We mustn't retreat. And we could easily argue that the saints uh, to whom Paul writes were in just as dark a culture as we are today. And, and look what happened. By the 300s, Christianity had covered an empire. And how did they do it? They didn't do it with an army. They didn't do it with military prowess. They did it by obeying the Lord. And that's what the Lord calls us to. It's no different today. That's what he calls us to. We are to be the witness of our Lord by our deeds and our words. Let's pray. We thank you again, O Lord, for your word and pray that your blessing will be upon your people as you convict us, as you admonish us, as you encourage us. We pray, Lord, that we would not grow weary in doing the work you've called us to do. We recognize, Father, every day we recognize, and we sit at our lunch tables, and we recognize, Father, all of the evil that is uh, unfolding before us in this world. And yet you have not called us to retreat, but you have called us to engage, but not to engage by throttling someone's throat, but by behaviors that they're impeccable, and by words that are full of light and flavor that are edifying. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us open doors outside of the church, that we might bring an aroma of heaven, that we might bring a contrary view to this world's view of Jesus Christ, that we would demonstrate him as being the loving and kind Savior and King that he is. Would you, Lord, bless our efforts? And we ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen.